going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to the epilogue. I'm Joe Guarneri. We're back after a few month hiatus. I recently got married, so the prep and the aftermath of that kind of took me away from a lot of things, but we're back now. I've been doing a lot of reading lately, nonetheless. Um, I just got through with a partial reread of William Gaddis's The Recognitions. I read um, a little Joseph McElroy, realizing that his huge book, Women and Men, is probably going to be a years-long journey where I go back and forth and finally complete it one day. I just started Anna Karenina, of course, by... Tolstoy. So I'm hoping to spend the next few weeks with that. I also have been dabbling in the Oxford book of British history. I've always kind of been a British history nerd. So this is a fun survey for me to to jump in and out of during a lunch break or for a few hours at night. Today, um, I want to talk about a book that I finished a few months ago. Vanity Fair by William Thackeray. I've had a love for Victorian literature for a long time. I think I mentioned it before on this podcast that really I got into all this reading the classics and reading serious literature um, when I read Great Expectations as a teenager. So Victorian literature is always kind of a special thing for me. Those of us who read have all experienced, I think, the phenomenon of coming upon a book at the perfect time. For me, nothing comes close to the timeliness of my reading of Vanity Fair about two months before getting married. It's a novel about love, both unrequited and reciprocal. It's about blind affection, marital responsibility, morality, war, the happenstance loss of wealth, the calculated gaining of status. And at its core is the question, is it more fulfilling to achieve behind a mask or fail with one's true self laid bare? The principal character of the book, as I'm sure you probably know, even if you haven't read the novel, is Becky Sharp. Uh, She's an orphan who schemes her way through London society and up its social hierarchy. The book follows a group of English families connected to her in various ways. And it's, um, it's, it's the backdrop of the book is the Napoleonic Wars. So you have the... Headley family, who begin the novel quite affluent and fall on hard times. Amelia and Joseph Headley, the son and the daughter, are the two major figures from the Headley clan. You also have the Osbournes, of which George, the son and soldier in the British Army, is the major character. George and Amelia have been in love. And I say that sort of with 
with quotes around it since childhood. It's sort of a promise love thing you see in classic novels a lot, but only Amelia really intends to keep the promise. She's the only one who is of the two who still plans on that being their future. You then got the Crawleys who employ Becky at the beginning of the book, of which two brothers, Rodden and Pitt, are the most prominent. And then you have the Dobbin family, William Dobbin, who's a longtime friend of George and Amelia is in the British Army too. He's a uh, major and he has a lifelong unrequited love for Amelia. The relationship between George, Amelia, and Dobbin is many times like a love triangle in which none of the triangle's three points connect. A lot of, I'd say the first half of the book, probably 50 or so percent of the book, contrasts the military life of Dobbin and George with the conventional society life back home of Amelia and Becky. And I, I know I, I, I seem to reference Tolstoy in every episode, but the connection absolutely must be made here between Vanity Fair and Warrant Peace. Within the first, I don't know, 200 pages of the book, maybe, I said to myself, Tolstoy must have been influenced by Thackeray in some way. I love classic books, but my knowledge of who read who throughout history is not what it could be. So I did some for some research on this. I looked into some uh, some scholarly work on this, and it turns out that Tolstoy was influenced by Thackeray, and more particularly by Vanity Fair. There are obvious similarities between the two novels. You have, of course, the contrast of comfortable life at home with the dangerous life on the battlefield. Both books cover the Napoleonic Wars, although at different times. But then you have the more nuanced similarities. Many of War and Peace's characters have a brother or, or sister character within Vanity Fair. Anna Drubetskoy and Helen Karagin, who are two social climbing characters in War and Peace, could have very well been inspired by Becky Sharp, Pierre Pizukov, a lost soul turned strong family man and probably War and Peace's most complex character shares a ton of similarities, in particular, an unrequited love with William Dobbin. Prince Andre is undoubtedly War and Peace's George Osborne, in that you have this archetype of a great warrior and hero in the eyes of, of society. Yet, that person is actually someone who deals with severe internal psychological struggle, which at its core is a lifelong search for something to live for. 
I want to do a deeper dive one day into Tolstoy's relationship with Victorian literature, because apparently his big three were Thackeray, Eliot, and Dickens, which is probably my top three, too, um, as far as the Victorians go. So getting back to, to Vanity Fair, I want to say um, just a little bit about Thackeray's prose. Victorian language and syntax at times can be difficult to get into if you're not used to it. Eliot's Middlemarch in particular is one book whose prose for me took a while to get used to. With Thackeray though, it feels a lot of the time like he's telling you a story over a beer. The writing is, of course, beautiful, but it feels more it feels more down to earth which is refreshing for those of us who spend hours, you know, engulfed in very dense and very difficult prose. The book and his language is also lightly metafictional. The framing device of the book is actually a, a puppet show, which allows the narrator to speak about the nature of the story itself rather than just its events, and its characters. So this passage here encapsulates all this in reference to the novel's realism and its uh, sort of inclusion of the mundane. Readers must hope for no such romance, only a homely story, and must be content with a chapter about Vauxhall, which is so short that it scarce deserves to be called a chapter at all. And yet it is a chapter, and a very important one too. Are not there little chapters in everybody's life that seem to be nothing, and yet affect all the rest of the history? And so this is in reference to um, a shorter chapter that occurs at the beginning of the book, and that at first read seems sort of unnecessary. It seems like something that could have happened off the page or, you know, off screen if you were referring to to a movie. But he includes it not only because it's important to the overall book, but because it allows him to make a comment about life itself. And that is something I love in the books I read. If you're looking to introduce someone to classics, or if you're looking to get more into classics yourself, this could be the one to do it. The book is long, but it's an easy read. The, the prose is not super difficult at all. I think it's a perfect introduction to Victorian lit. I'd like now to go through a few of my notes and annotations. I'll also keep from going too in-depth on some things because, yes, you can spoil a 170-year-old book. Vanity Fair is it's very cinematic. There are many parts of the book where someone will return unexpectedly or a huge revelation is made. And those who have not yet 
read the book should be as surprised and delighted as I was. The novel as a whole is an attempt to explore the moral limits of ambition. In other words, how far are we willing to go to succeed beyond our means? The most ambitious and successful characters in Vanity Fair are often the most morally questionable. Becky, for example, works her way through London society with blinding speed, but she leaves in her wake a neglected child, a husband she marries for his connections, and ultimately she ends up with a terrible reputation for treachery. And yet Amelia, who is the novel's kind, reserved, devoted, naive character spends most of the book destitute and lonely. So what is Thackeray saying? To me, he's advocating for a sort of balance between ambition and success and the parts of life that are truly irreplaceable, like connection to your family. And this sounds overly simple, of course, but it's a huge part of life that we still take for granted today. And I, I think we can all benefit from the reminder here. And Thackeray is brutally truthful about this. He has a preoccupation with the tragedy that is wasting one's life on the trivial. There's an, an older patriarch character who passes away about halfway through a character who spends most of their life emotionally detached from their loved ones. And here's how Thackeray eulogizes him. Beyond her and a favorite old pointer he had, and between whom and himself an attachment subsisted during the period of his imbecility, the old man had not a single friend to mourn him, having indeed during the whole course of his life, never taken the least pains to secure one. Could the best and kindest of us who depart from the earth have an opportunity of revisiting it? I suppose he or she, assuming that any Vanity Fair feelings subsist in the sphere whither we are bound, would have a pang of mortification at finding how soon our survivors were consoled. And so Sir Pitt was forgotten, like the kindest and best of us, only a few weeks sooner. Related to this sort of seize the day attitude almost, Thackeray was hypertuned to the social and familial masks we wear at times, along with our willingness to blindly and ignorantly and even quietly follow social tradition, which of course only perpetuates more disingenuity. Here's one more passage on this that, uh, that really stuck with me after. As long as we have a man's body, we play our vanities upon it, surrounding it with humbug and ceremonies, laying it in state and packing it up in gilt nails and velvet. And we finish our duty by placing over it a stone, 
written all over with lies. Moving on, I also want to talk about the novel's subtitle, which is a novel without a hero. I think for most of the book, this is probably true, but it doesn't tell the entire story. By the end of the book, it's clear that Amelia and Dobbin really are the story's true hero and heroine, but they can never truly gain that title because their heroic actions throughout the book go either unrecognized, unnoticed, or are deliberately concealed. Despite their flaws, Dobbin is very vain. Amelia is naive. She's blinded by her love. But despite all of that, they are the two characters who are never fully broken or ostracized, who never stray from their values, who don't neglect those around them for the material things in life, and who at the end, are rewarded in a lot of ways with happiness. By the end, the subtitle refers, to me anyway, to the fact that our hero and heroine are not viewed as such by society because their actions are not overt or grandiose. Not that no such heroes exist in the book. And my favorite Example of this comes at the beginning of the of the novel. Amelia's father goes bankrupt and they lose their their home and all of their belongings are being auctioned off. Dobbin attends the auction and quietly purchases Amelia's beloved piano. The family believes that the piano is a gift from George Osborne as he is again verbally engaged to Amelia, and Dobbin refrains from telling them the truth. He is willing to shroud his good deed and his love for Amelia in order to not complicate her love life. And still, the book really isn't about redemption. You would believe that with all of this hardship that you're going to have these these huge redemption moments towards the end of the book. Personally, I wouldn't consider it a redemption novel because the characters don't experience these key moments. They recover and they grow, of course, from poverty, from a reputation destroyed an accusation made, a neighbor, friend, or family member wronged. But the focus is always on their decisions and their obsessions, their moral and romantic blind spots, and the, and the, the consequences of each of these. So I think that's going to do it for today's episode. I really hope that this concise discussion of of Vanity Fair either inspired you to go pick up the book or to read it over again. I want to leave you with one last quote about marriage from the book that I I still think about every few days, you know, even after finishing the book about three months ago now, two or three months ago now. It's a beautiful passage and at its core, it's a warning 
to not take for granted even the things that may seem as if they'll last forever. As his hero and heroine pass the matrimonial barrier, the novelist generally drops the curtain as if the drama were over then. The doubts and struggles of life ended, as if once landed in the marriage country, all were green and pleasant. And wife and husband had nothing to do but to link each other's arms together and wandered gently downwards towards old age in happy and perfect fruition. This was, to me, a warning. A warning that even something as beautiful and as sure as a marriage is something that needs work and that needs commitment and that requires the two who are being joined in marriage to continue to grow and to learn and to think about what they they have and what's around them that's going to do it feel free to connect with me on instagram at joe guaneri and i hope you enjoy this episode thank you